0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer.
1: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. This is episode number 24 for February 2013. My name is Mike McGinnis, and with me as usual is my co-host, Ken Gagney.
2: Hi, I'm Ken Gagney, and with me as always is my podcast co-host, Mike McGinnis, and I have a question for Mike. Well, I'll ask him if I see him. I didn't see an episode number 23 on our website.
1: Well, no, that's because episode 23 was our year-end roundup this time. Last year we did the roundtable and we did a January episode, but this time we opted to skip that and just go right ahead to February.
2: Are we getting slow in our old age? Well, I don't know about you, but I sure am. <laughs> I think I'm getting younger.
1: Um, I don't
2: know about that. Hey, it worked for Merlin.
1: I like to convince myself that
2: I'm getting younger. Now you're just acting more immaturely is all. Well, that's what my wife tells me, yes. But you know what's getting older is this podcast. We turned two this month.
1: I know, that's crazy. 24 episodes. Wow. And then some, because we've done a couple specials in there, too. Yeah, every time somebody died. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a depressing reason to do special episodes, but...
2: Hey, anything to get our catalog built up.
1: Well, that's right.
2: So yes, show number one aired without any preamble or forewarning on Monday, February 7th, 2011. And we have done a show pretty much every month since then. Every now and then we'll throw something in there. And call it an episode just to keep the streak running, but in general, yeah, this is remains the Apple II community's only co-hosted podcast
1: and only currently uh, active podcast as, as I understand it
2: well, I suppose that's true I mean there are lots of other podcasts about retro computing which includes the Apple II, but as far as Apple II specifically, what were the other ones there was one megahertz and a2 unplugged right
1: and uh, obviously a2 unplugged doesn't on the air anymore and it's been a while since uh, we've seen a one megahertz from my my other podcasting co-host Carrington so
2: yes uh, he did a show in July of 2011 and then again in July of 2012 so maybe this July it'll, it'll become the world's only annual podcast
1: there you go I'll, I'll hit him up for that next time uh, next time I talk to him how's your no quarter going? Uh, it's going great. We do that weekly, uh, but it's easy because we only do about a half an hour instead of the show, which goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's fun because we every week we talk about uh, a different classic video arcade game. He and I compare scores. Lately, he's been kicking my rear, so to speak, but um, I'm hoping my luck will change with this next game.
2: Ooh, what game is that? Well, I
1: can't give that away. It's a secret.
2: Fine. I guess I'll have to subscribe.
1: You'll have to listen to find
2: out. But, you know, I think on a monthly basis, you guys probably produce more content than this show does.
1: I don't know, because these shows, our shows typically are, what, around two hours, give or take?
2: A little bit shy of that.
1: And each each no quarter is about 30 minutes, and I do four of those a month. So I think the content is probably about the same. I just do that on a more regular basis.
2: So would you rather do Open Apple every week and interview a different person every week?
1: I think that would be a lot more difficult, um, trying to include a third person. Uh, every single week, because the the no quarter is just just uh, Carrington and I. We don't we don't have any guests on or anything like that.
2: Right, and I can see how the different game every week would lend itself to that variety. But I like the rotating third spot that we have on this show. I think it's what makes us unique.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I wouldn't. I personally, I after two years of doing this, I, I think that this this is a formula that works well for us, and I intend to stick to it.
2: Great. Yeah. Now, speaking of guests, I understand that you recently had a guest in your own backyard and a fellow Apple II user was passing through.
1: I did. Uh, Egan Ford, a.k.a. the Data Jerk, uh, was in town for some uh, business-related stuff. He listens to both this podcast and to No Quarter, so hello, Egan. Uh, We hung out for a while at uh, the local barcade called The the One Up in downtown Denver, uh, a place with which I think you are familiar, Ken. Oh, yes, I've been there
2: many a time, including with you.
1: Yeah. So, uh, he stopped by and dropped off a couple of 6502 assembly language programming books. And I gave him his prize for winning the, the Tuesday trivia contest on my blog. And we had a good time.
2: Excellent. Now you opted to go to the one up and not the two up?
1: Uh, we did. He was staying in a hotel in downtown that was within a couple of blocks. So he was able to just walk over. Uh, the two up is a little bit further away from,
2: from downtown Denton. And it is quite the good arcade, but I think one up has a slight edge as far as offerings go.
1: It's it's a larger space, um, and so they can fit more games in there, and they've upgraded it, I think, since the last time you were there, at least with me. Uh, there were booths in certain places that have been replaced with games, um, and I, I found that as I return, I'm seeing that they're rotating games in and out, which is nice.
2: Oh, interesting. I wonder where they're coming yeah. from.
1: Uh, I think they have a warehouse somewhere of games and I'm sure that they swap them out between the 2UP and the 1UP as well.
2: I wonder if any of those games are part of the deal that they got when they bought Twin Galaxies.
1: I don't, I don't know. I thought Twin Galaxies at that point was pretty much just a website and uh,
2: uh, an IP. But I could be wrong. No, I think you're right. I'm just wondering if maybe Twin Galaxies had a warehouse with some games and they just didn't have any space to put them out.
1: Mm, I thought that Walter sold all, all that stuff off years ago. I could be wrong. I'm...
2: No, I, I think you're right. I'm just making stuff up. Oh, okay. Yeah. And speaking of Apple II users and Barcades, I will be headed to Fun Spot very early in February with Mr. Andy Malloy. Oh, I'm jealous.
1: You and I went, what, last summer? Labor Day 2011. Yep. Uh, wow. Two Almost two years ago. I had a great time. I had a really great time. So I will definitely be burning with envy while you guys drop the coins.
2: Yeah, it's always a great time. This is an annual pilgrimage that Andy and I make. I usually go up there twice a year, once with him. It's in the middle of the winter, so it's not a great time to be exploring this summer vacation land. On the other hand, it's not very crowded either. We'll probably hit up Pinball Wizard on the way home, and we're hopeful to be having dinner with the director of the documentary Going Cardboard. Have you ever seen that film? No,
1: I, I haven't. I've heard about it. It's one that's on my need-to-watch list, but I haven't got to it yet.
2: Yeah, it was edited by Jason Scott, but but directed and produced by a young woman named Lorian Green. Mm-hmm. She, she lives in the New Hampshire area, which is where these two arcades are. And our professional paths crossed recently, but we haven't met. We've only exchanged Facebooks and tweets. So I'm hopeful that we'll finally get to put a face to the name. And I also emailed uh, Gary Vincent, who is one of the proprietors at Funspot. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to pin him down and maybe speak to him in a professional capacity for a few minutes. That'd be nice. And if not, he'll probably be at Penny Arcade Expo East, PAX East, occurring in March, which Andy and I are going to, as is Wayne Artherton and another Apple II user I have to tell you about.
1: It looks like you hung out with an Apple II person as well.
2: I did. I hung out with Paul Hegstrom, who was on this show back in August. I met him for the first time at Kansas Fest 2012, and he lives right in Boston, not too far from me. Oh, nice. Yeah, he is a professor at BU, and he had to get some materials from... MIT's library, which ties in well with a recent change in my life. On Christmas Eve, I gave my two-week notice at Computer World Magazine.
1: And why did you do that?
2: Well, I'd been there for six years, and I felt it was time for a change. So I uh, sent out some resumes looking for a job focusing on uh, website administration and content and social media. Mm -hmm. And I got a gig with MIT Medical, which is an on-campus healthcare facility whose clients are the students, employees, and employees' families, so everything from a 17-year-old genius to a 90-year-old retiree. Neat. Yeah, I'll be a web producer in their marketing and communication department, so I'll be running their internal and external websites on Drupal, as well as their social media presences.
1: Now, as an employee of MIT, does that mean you get to to take classes there for free?
2: Uh, There is some tuition benefits, that's true, but I think the real benefit comes from working in the same campus as Nick Montfort and Tim Berners-Lee. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, I actually already saw one of them as I was crossing campus, and I understand the other one makes himself known on a, on a variety of email threads, so it's not uncommon for you to just be uh, leaving a message somewhere, and all of a sudden you have a reply from the inventor of the World Wide Web.
1: Wow, that's wild.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. I also started teaching at Emerson College. I mentioned that previously. I'm teaching an undergraduate course in electronic publishing. I started my students off with some history of the internet, which was kind of Mind-blowing to them. I brought in this super-heavy hard drive I had on my Apple II. That was all of 300 megabytes. And I had them pass it around. I told them, I'll be very sad if you drop this. <laughs> uh, but it's a lot of fun. The kids are very, very inquisitive, very eager to learn. I'm right now teaching them about HTML and CSS. Then we're moving on to WordPress and some podcasting. Uh, I'll probably be giving them some of the outtakes from this show to play with in Audacity to teach them how to do some editing. Great. Well, I hope you think so.
1: (laughs) Well, you always make me look good or make me look something.
2: (laughs) Or at least sound good.
1: Yes, exactly. But it sounds like it's been a smooth transition, though.
2: Uh, So far, so good. I actually have already started at MIT, haven't done much yet, just because there's so much orientation to do. But I am missing the computer that I used to use at Computer World. It was a Lion-equipped OS X machine. And Lion is the minimum OS required for me to run the software that I use to do screencast videos of Nintendo games, and I was doing some of those over the holiday break using my work computer. My home computer is only on Snow Leopard, so I haven't been able to do many video casts. Like, I wanted to do a a, a, the first half hour of certain games, like the new Super Mario or The Cave, which came out from Double Fine by Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert, not in that order, the creators of Maniac Mansion, and I'm having a little bit of trouble doing that with my home computer, but... I think once I start getting my new paychecks from MIT, it might be time to get a new computer.
1: I wish I could go back to Snow Leopard.
2: You don't like Mountain Lion?
1: Uh, the switch over for me from Snow Leopard to Lion and then to Mountain Lion has been problematic. I'll just leave, just leave it at that. It, it hasn't been very smooth.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking what I might do is partition my internal hard drive and install Mountain Lion on one of them mm-hmm. and just boot into that when I need to run the one application that requires it.
1: It's probably the way to go. Yeah. Is
2: there anything you want to talk about? I've been talking about me a lot.
1: Um, no, not not really. I, um, I've i renewed my efforts to learn 6502 assembly language, um, which in the past has always been sort of a sore spot for me and not really being able to know how to do that. I, I sort of made a decision that it was okay not to know everything or to learn the way that the books suggested, and so far it's been working out pretty well.
2: I would recommend the website Codecademy, which is very useful for learning HTML, CSS, and PHP, but I'm guessing they don't have Apple II Assembly.
1: Uh I wouldn't think so, no. Mm. Oh, well. I found the most important thing for me has been to skip or just not to worry so much about being able to do the binary math and the hexadecimal math um by hand on paper because there are enough calculators out there that I can just do that quickly. Uh, and, and ignore the warnings at the beginning of pretty much every assembly language book out there that says, you must learn this or or it will be disaster for you if you continue. <laughs> um, and so I've been playing with the, the Visual Computer 6502, which is a product that we've talked about in the past on this very podcast, and Easy 6502, uh, which is a learning system that's online. It's been very helpful.
2: Okay, I'm glad you're finding that useful. So there is something yeah. good that came out of Lion. I think so. Hey. Before we move on to the crux of the show, I want to offer two caveats. One is I apologize for the potential lessening of my audio quality. For the last two years, OpenApple East has been housed out of the Computer World Audio Studio, to which I no longer have access for obvious reasons. So I'm using a temporary home setup, and I'm hopeful that I will eventually have access to whatever MIT has to offer.
1: Well, why don't you just sneak in there at night?
2: Well, I think it'll get to the point where I will actually be able to sneak in there during the day.
1: No, I meant the computer world had uh, oh. Access and MIT. Uh,
2: I'm not quite sure how to get past their rigorous security systems. I see. I might have to hire Robert Redford from the movie Sneakers. There you go. Sea yeah. Tech Astronomy. <laughs> Anybody want to shut down a power grid? Because <laughs> it's that easy, you know? Right, exactly. Uh The other correction I want to offer is regarding not once but twice on this very show, we have mentioned the Drift demo disc that came out last summer from Daniel Kruzna, Melissa Barron, and Antoine Vigneault. And we must have gotten it right at some point because it's only recently that we have started omitting the fourth credit from that list of credits. The Drift demo disc was the effort equally shared among four individuals and the name that we have been omitting is wade clark from australia who has been a faithful listener to this show and a contributor to juice gs and i have no explanation for why we suddenly forgot him so my humblest apologies we always want to give credit where it's due and so we much appreciate wade writing in and gently pointing out that omission
1: yeah sorry about that wade but uh, the drift demo is definitely Five and a quarter inches of pure awesome, so we're sorry that we left your name off there.
2: Yeah, without him, it'd be like one and a quarter inch less awesome. Oh, my.
0: This is David Schmidt of ADT Pro, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast.
2: On the Open Apple Podcast, we've been honored to have domestic subscribers and international listeners from around the world. And today we have a strange amalgam of the two. Please welcome Jimmy Mayer. Hi, Jimmy. Hi. I am pronouncing your name correctly.
3: Actually it's Jimmy Maher. Kind of like the comedian Bill Maher.
2: And so I've been mispronouncing Bill's last name as well, incorrectly.
3: Well, actually this is this gets complicated already, but um okay, Bill Maher Bill it's Bill Marr, um as, as in M A R R. And with my name it is Jimmy Maher. So you actually say two syllables. But I'm much closer to Bill Maher than I am to Mayer, so... How
2: about I just call you Jimmy?
3: That, I think, will work out just fine.
2: Thank you. I apologize for the oversight. Now, where are you calling in from today, Jimmy?
3: I'm calling from a little town in Norway called Drebak, which is about 30 minutes outside of Oslo.
2: Norway? Wow, your English is fantastic.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we have quite good, quite good English education here in Scandinavia. What can I say? Now, I've read a little bit about you on your
2: website. I'm guessing that Scandinavia is not actually from whence you originate
3: <laughs> no actually i was I was born in Michigan and um grew up in Dallas and moved to Denmark in two thousand and nine and then moved to norway uh, When was that last year yeah, last year a little over a year ago
1: that that threw me the first time i I read some of your articles online. Because I didn't know uh, your history, and I thought, wow, this guy's English
2: is really, really good. <laughs> I know, probably better than ours, too. Yeah,
3: definitely. You would actually be surprised at how good the the English is here in Scandinavia. Oh, um, sure, yeah. Yeah, It's 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 kind of a problem when you're trying to learn the language here, because everybody speaks such good English that as soon as you start in with your broken Danish or Norwegian, they just immediately switch to English, and you're kind of going, oh, well, that's nice, guys, but... You know, I would kind of like to try to converse in the native language here and learn something, so.
2: What's the retro computing scene like over there?
3: Um, it's mainly, I think, centered around, um, the demo scene is still quite big here. I don't know if, I don't know if the Apple people were so much into the demo scene because it was more of a European thing. The Apple II was not quite as big in Europe as it was in North America. Uh, but that's this, uh, it's this, Kind of community where people will take these old machines uh, like commodore sixty fours and amigas, and they will do demos with them, so they 're just basically multimedia showcases where they you know they have animation as spectacular graphics or as spectacular as they can make them on these machines and music and it's It's something that's been going on for Oh, 25, 30 years now. It's, it's, it's quite a hotbed here in Scandinavia. Not like it used to be because, um, you know, of course the people are not using the old hardware as much as they used to, but, um, that's still kind of what Scandinavia is known for, I think, amongst retro computing people.
2: Do you have a local community of Apple II users?
3: Uh, not that I know of. I, Apple is, the Apple II is just never had a big presence here. Um, the, also the the commodore machines were very big and the sinclair machines um the, that came out of britain clive sinclair's the um sinclair spectrum were very very big here actually the guy that the guy that developed linux uh linus torvalds i think i'm pronouncing that right actually grew up using commodore machines so the apples never became quite as big here until really more the modern era, you know, now everybody has the iPhones and iPads, and Macs are much more popular now. But I don't believe the Apple II was ever had really a a major presence here.
2: Well, fortunately, that's not where you grew up. You had plenty of opportunities to get introduced (laughs) to the Apple II. Tell us a little bit about your background with the machine.
3: Well, I actually um, grew up in kind of a... I was exposed to quite a number of the early computing platforms when I was young. Um, I actually, my first machine that I owned personally was actually a Commodore 64, (laughs) but yeah, I know. But, um, at the same time, really even, I believe even before I got that machine, uh, my sister's boyfriend, um, he bought one of the earliest Apple IIEs that came out. This was, would have been when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And so I played around on that machine a bit, and he had actually bought that machine for his business. He owned a construction company, and about a year after he bought the machine, uh the construction industry in Dallas sort of tanked, and he lost his business. So he ended up selling the apple to my father, who bought it, you know, just to do the typical stuff, word processing, correspondence, and so on. And so I was in the really privileged position of having a Commodore 64 in my bedroom and then a Apple IIe in the office. So I kind of learned to appreciate the strengths and the weaknesses of all of the platforms early on. I also worked with IBM clones quite early um, in school. So, so I kind of hopefully have a little bit more balanced perspective rather than being just a fanboy for, you know, for one maker. And hey, not that there's anything wrong with us fanboys. No, of course not.
2: <laughs>
3: now, did you stick with
2: these machines throughout your computing career, or was there a time in the last 10 years when you are like, I need to get back to my roots?
3: Um, the machine that I really, really loved more than any, and this is also going to be controversial on an Apple podcast, <laughs> but that was actually the Amiga. I got my first Amiga in 86, and I just loved that machine, and so... I used that machine until actually the some point in the early 90s when it just became obvious that it wasn't viable anymore commercially. And then by way of protest, I kind of dropped out of computers for a few years, did other things, and then eventually when I came back, I finally recognized that, okay, obviously the world of Microsoft has won as far as the things that I'm interested in are, which were at the time mainly games. And so I actually bought my first PC clone and I've pretty much worked with Intel hardware ever since then. Um actually I, I hadn't I hadn't used an Apple II in many years until recently, but then the last couple of years I've gotten into the scene on the blog um and I've kind of relearned a lot and learned a lot that I didn't know at the time and it's it's really enhanced my appreciation I think for the platform and the culture and the just what amazing technology it was in its time.
1: So I've actually uh been reading your blog for a little while now uh Jimmy and I I got to tell you I really love the the articles the the depth that you go to in exploring the history not only just talking about the games that you're playing but the companies behind them. I I, I enjoyed the early for example, the early Zork coverage and and how you talked about Infocom and and the people behind that. How did you get into? How did you decide that that's what you wanted to write about in your blog? And when you when you do these articles, what kind of research goes into this? I mean, the the stuff that you write's uh, very very in depth, obviously, and very detailed. How long does it take you to prepare one of these articles?
3: Let try to break that up and take that Sorry, one step that at a, a time <laughs> yeah, we could that's the next two hours there <laughs> but, no um well this the story of how the blog happened was actually kind of by accident i when i when we first came to Denmark, the plan was that I was going to use i had actually just uh Negotiate a bo- uh, negotiated a book contract to write a platform studies volume for MIT Press that is now out on the Amiga. And I used the first, oh, year to year and a half that I was living in Denmark uh, working, working on that project. And then when that was finished, I kind of felt at loose ends a little bit. I didn't know. I wanted to keep writing, but I didn't quite know how to go about doing that, so to speak. I started the blog not in the beginning entirely knowing what I was going to do with it. And uh, if you, like the people that were reading from the very beginning, um which were not very many, may remember that I did some music reviews, some movie reviews, and I kind of was just hunting around for something. And um for my forte, so to speak. But then I got quite interested in the history of a game that... I think all Apple II users will remember called the Oregon Trail. And that was a, I got, I got very interested somehow or other in, in the history of that game, which is really fascinating. I mean, that game came out originally on an HP mini computer in 1971. And it was done by a teacher, um, for his high school class. He wrote this game to try to illustrate, you know, the challenges of traveling on the Oregon Trail for the settlers going from east to west in the pioneer days of America. And as I started looking, I realized that the oldest version of that game that existed was one that had been published in uh, one of the early computing magazines called Creative Computing from 1978. And I just started wondering, well, can I find an older version somewhere? So I got in touch with some people that have worked. They're kind of like the HP minicomputer version of the Apple II retrocomputing community. Um, they have worked to preserve the history of these machines, and they've actually archived a lot of the early backup tapes from actual s- system installations from 1970s, early 1980s, and so on. Just an absolute treasure trove. So I ended up talking with these people, and we started looking through these old backup tapes, these old images, to see what we could find. And um, we actually found not quite the Holy Grail, which would have been an Oregon Trail from 1971, but we did find one from 1975 or 1974, right in that in that area. That That itself was quite amazing to find, because, of course, this game... Later went on to you know become such a just a perennial hit on the Apple II and I believe now it's even on um, tablets and phones and so on and it's just been such a such a continual presence in uh, you know in games so so I found that and that was just an amazing project and I put that out on the on the internet for other people to look at and i've actually gotten some academic interest um from you know people in Various universities that have, that are interested in studying the source code and so on. And that was really uh, exciting. And from there, I kind of just wanted to keep going. And so I started looking at some other early games and only kind of gradually did it evolve into what it is now, which is kind of this, you know, huge grand history of early PCs and uh, the gaming, the gaming cultures that, that were on them. So um yeah kind of by accident but I've really kind of hopefully found my forte now and um I have a lot of I have a fair number of readers and I've gotten a decent amount of attention from people like you guys among so many others and so it's been just really gratifying it's really fun I I and I and I think it's a service that is worth doing I think it's important history to archive and to remember and to get these stories now, while the people that were involved are mostly, you know, still alive and still able to tell their stories.
2: But why are you choosing to do this on the blog when you have a history as a published book author? Surely you could have gotten a contract to do a follow-up.
3: Um, possibly. Um, one One problem is that when you work with a publisher, you kind of always have to work on their terms. You know, you have to do something that fits within uh, their, their established frameworks. So for instance, when I was doing the Amiga book, which, you know, I, again, I think that was an important project. I'm very happy with it. Um, but I was also working within the framework of this MIT Press series uh, called Platform Studies. So I was a little bit bound in, you know, the, how much detail I could go into as far as, you know, I just had a hard word, word limit in the end and and so for this project i kind of stumbled into it as i related and then i really find it a gratifying way to write um because you know i get almost every day now you know i get a few comments or emails or something and i find that that it's writing can be very lonely work and when you're working on a book um without any feedback for months at a time uh, you kind of always reach a point where you're saying, God, you know, is this really any good? What am I doing here? And so the working with the blog makes it a little bit more of a social experience and kind of keeps my spirits up and gives me enough positive feedback that I feel like, okay, you know, people are reading, people like this and, you know, this is, this is worthwhile. But in the long term, um, I do hope to Turn this into a book, or more likely a series of books and i've I've got some things in motion right now that i've I'm discussing some things we'll put it that way that may um, maybe this year or next year, maybe a first book that based on the material on the blog can come out. Another thing that's really nice about working in the blog format is when I get things wrong, which I do inevitably more often than I sometimes care to admit there's always somebody smart out there that will come back and say oh, no you got that that's not right no you're overreaching there no you know it didn't quite work that way and so um that's great you know because that's that means that when it does come to a book that it's had a lot more eyes on it and a lot more smart people that really know this stuff have looked at the material before it becomes a book so hopefully that reduces the number of errors that creep into the book
2: and that speaks well of your ability to self-correct to uh, accept that feedback.:
3: Yeah, well, um, sometimes sometimes it's a little bit hard, sometimes it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, actually, quite recently on the blog, I wrote a long article about the development of an early adventure game that was very popular mainly in Britain in the early days, based on the Hobbit by J. R. R. Tolkien. I was working just with uh, magazine articles and so on that that were available at the time. There hasn't been really much written about this game in years and years, but at the time it was huge. It was actually possibly, actually very likely, the best-selling text adventure ever released on any platform. That's how big this game was. And um, so at the time, I did my best. I did my best research, and published the article on the game and how the development proceeded, as best as I could divine from the sources. And a few days later, actually, I got an email from a woman named Veronica Megler, who was actually one of the programmers that worked on The Hobbit. And in the article, I had basically given her a sort of second stringer credit um behind the person that I believed at the time was the main creator and the main you know the main creative force. And she's was for understandable reasons not terribly happy with me and said, you know, no, that's not how it went. I was actually the one, the first person on the project. I was the first person hired by the company, um Melbourne House Software in Australia. And I was it was, The Hobbit was really my game. And so as I talked to her and she just had such a great memory for everything that went on and what she had done and what her colleagues had done, I very quickly came to believe her. And then, um, she also pointed me to another website that offered a certain amount of proof to what she was asserting. And so in the end, I said, okay, yes, I need to basically substantially rewrite this entire article to give you the credit you deserve and in the end um that's what i did and i also wrote a little mia culpa blog post in it, you know saying that hey i got this wrong please read this article again and um you know apologies to everyone affected here but you know i get things wrong sometimes and when i do i just have to try to go back and get them right because i think that one problem with video game journalism is that there's not a lot of attention given to getting things right. And so I really, really work to get everything as factually correct as I can make it, which doesn't mean I'm always hundred percent correct, but it's, it's definitely the best I can do.
1: Going back to the, the Amiga book for just a second. I, I bought that book middle of last year and read it probably in about a day, day and a half. And it was a really great book. I loved it and I can't wait to see more
2: uh, from you. Thank you. And you've written other ebooks. Don't you have one on interactive fiction?
3: Yeah, um, the, my only, uh, quote unquote professionally published book is this Amiga book that was published by the MIT Press. Um, the book on interactive fiction is something that I actually originally wrote uh, back in graduate school as a as kind of a major project and i published you know what actually that was my that was my not my graduate school that was my undergraduate thesis yeah that was my last project as an undergraduate and, um, I should say at this point that I took some serious time off <laughs> before returning to university. So that's why, that's why the time frame maybe doesn't sync up quite as it should. But, um, yeah. So I, I did this book on interactive fiction, um, and just published it on my website. And, and it, this is another thing about, you know, the internet and the retro computing community. Um, there's just so many amazing people that are just always willing to offer help and um sometimes just do things for you as in this case so uh somebody came along and said um you know I know a lot about formatting books for the Kindle and I'd be happy to do that for you so he actually created a version of the of the book quote unquote book that um you know can be read on the Kindle e-readers and also on other e-readers the two it's in both of the two major formats um, that are used by e-readers today, so yeah, that was great and um that's that's something that it's it's a little bit when I read that one a little I'm a little bit embarrassed in a way sometimes because you know no writer likes to read something that they wrote years ago because <laughs> we like to think we're always getting better, but um, I still get some positive feedback on it, so hopefully it's not too atrocious.
2: Well, for what it's worth, I'm happy to go back and read things you wrote years ago. Your blog posts are so voluminous that I'm regularly falling behind. And, uh, (laughs) thank you. And, you know, I, I don't know whether or not I want you to keep writing because it feels like I'll never catch up, but I'm so, (laughs) I'm so glad that you are. Jason Scott recently gave you a really nice plug and I hope that he, that sent some additional readers your way and that your audience continues to grow and that you continue to provide this fantastic content. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, well, thank you very much. And that was, as you said, very great of Jason to offer such a, basically an extended, you know, a promotional piece for my blog. And I, he has so many readers, so many more even still, you know, than I do. So yeah, that, that was, that was great. And my traffic is slowly creeping upward all the time. So that, that's gratifying as well.
1: I think it's safe to say that both of us are really big
2: fans of your work
3: well thank you so much
2: yeah you just need to monetize this stuff get on kickstarter <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> well i'm hoping that um maybe we maybe if i can get a book out this year or early next year then um can start to see some income from it that way um i'm i'm very much in the do what you love and hopefully the money will follow camp so and luckily we're not in a position where we're hurting for money here so um It's one. It's one advantage of marrying a doctor. (laughs) I highly recommend it. (laughs) So, so yeah. Um, you know, I'm in a position to do it, and um, if we if I see some money from it, great. If not, I think it's an important service anyway.
0: Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news.
2: Starting off the news section this month is a very controversial item. Just. In late January, we saw the first clip from the film Jobs. That's with a lowercase j, capital O-B-S. It is a biopic about the life of Steve Jobs, supposedly an independent film, not to be confused with the big-budget Sony film that's been optioned from Walter Isaacson's biography. This film stars Ashton Kutcher of That 70s Show as Steve Jobs and Josh Gad from the Broadway musical Book of Mormon as Steve Wozniak. The first clip that we've seen is only about two minutes long, and it is in preview of the April 19th release of the film in theaters. The film will also be seen at the Sundance Film Festival. However, the initial clip that we are seeing has raised a number of conflicting opinions, and I'm curious to hear what Mike and Jimmy have to say on the subject.
3: Well, I should just say to begin with that I'm suffering from a little bit of Steve Jobs fatigue in general in the last couple of years there's just been so so much on him and it's not that i want to minimize his contributions which were of course huge but um i get a little bit frustrated with kind of the mainstream perception that he essentially created the modern world <laughs> yeah, at least that's what you would believe if you know if you watch if you see some of this entertainment journalism and so on um as far as the clip well first of all I wonder if they know what an operating system is cuz they don't really seem to quite understand the technology here. Um I'm also actually as I was as I was looking at this I was reading through Steve Wozniak's uh perception which is also extremely unfavorable. I don't see any in the Steve Wozniak that I see on the screen and granted it's only for 1 minute. I don't see a whole lot of the Steve Wozniak that I know from his autobiography and from um the various other published sources on on his life. Um, certainly, I don't see any of his trademark humor. Um, I don't believe that he ever would have worn a suit at least not at least not voluntarily. <laughs> so um my my feeling here is that this is just going to be a very typical Hollywood reaction um to things that frankly they don't understand all that well, and so I will probably be giving this one a pass unless I hear some very good things about it from other people.
1: I'll preface my comments by saying that this is something that i I probably will see this anyway and then complain about it loudly and bitterly. Uh, my perceptions from the clip were that this is not Kuchar trying to be Jobs. This is this is this is Kutcher being Kelso of that '70s show, being Steve Jobs. <laughs> well, and what strikes me is that they they really went out of their way and in, in when they put the stills online of him in costume, they went out of their way to make him look as much like Jobs as possible. But the performance is nothing like Steve Jobs. There's, he did not do any, it doesn't seem to me that he did, it made any effort at all to try and mimic the mannerisms, the speech patterns, anything like that. Um And I, I now, granted, I didn't know, obviously, Wozniak back then, but Josh Gad's portrayal of Wozniak doesn't seem to be uh, anything like the Woz that we know now. And maybe he has changed over time, but that seemed way off, too. Yeah. So, um, but, as Jason Scott posted on the Apple II Enthusiast Facebook group, this is not a this is not a movie for um, vintage computing enthusiasts. This is a mainstream type movie so
3: well i i just I just get the feeling that this movie is going to be very typical and that it 's going to get everything wrong <laughs> that it possibly can and you know it's it 's funny um whenever whenever I see any depiction of computing in you know on tele- in television or movies or what have you it's always just makes me angry because it's always so wrong. I was having this discussion with my wife recently um because as I said she's a doctor, and unfortunately for her, there are a lot more doctors on television than there are computer people, so you know she's always just every time we watch television she's always complaining that oh that's not how it works what are they doing why would you do that and like pregnancy things scenes are the ones that drive her insane because she says a woman does not look like that when she's having a baby (laughs) and you know like she's pushing or, or or doing some sort of athletic exercise or something you know it's and then and then when the baby is actually born it's the baby is always like two months old uh, right. you can always tell it's not a newborn baby you know and so there and so i think for all professions or for all people that really know their subject that this is just a constant kind of source of annoyance i guess in the end my reaction to the movie is that i don't have any confidence that they're going to do any better than the norm um the it, it seems like they're just using words that they heard somewhere and plugging them in and figuring their audience won't understand. So we just use the words operating system and nobody will know what we're talking about anyway. Well, you know, that's fine for maybe 90% of your audience won't, but there are some people that will and my, my feeling is that it doesn't take that much longer to try to get some of this stuff right. And you can preserve the, as much as you want of the drama. You know, of course, you're going to make things possibly more dramatic than they than they really were, but um, still, you can you can get the basics right, and it's 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 not incompatible with also having a good movie. So, I just don't understand why always in these kind of productions it has to go this way. It's a constant source of frustration for me
1: yeah and it's it 's kind of funny too, because in some areas they really did go out of their way for authenticity they They contacted Mike Willegal and bought a bunch of his mimeo uh, one Apple One replicas to put in the film and the Apple twos that are in the film are the are real apple twos mm-hmm. so there's there's this mix of of really really technically accurate authentic and then script that's that 's dialogue that's just completely off base and maybe it 's because they, they, they initially approached Waz, um, and wanted to hire him to be a technical advisor on the film, and he said no after reading the script, and you have to wonder if that would have been different if he had signed on to, to provide some sort of, uh, historical accuracy to, to their production.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I also find that it, it really seems that the people that, that write movies they don't really understand what motivates the person like Steve Wozniak. They don't like the hacker mentality is just not something that they're really can connect with somehow. And so it, the the end the portrayal in the end always is just somehow wrong. Like even you know even like in this in the Social Network this movie that I was supposed to love uh, you know all the critics told me. <laughs> and you know I thought it was decent but at the same time I just thought you know that's that's not really that's not really the way computer hackers or computer nerds if that's what you want to call them that's that's not really how they're motivated that's not really correct the way the portrayal that you're that you're delivering and it really just seems like you know kind of a Venus and Mars kind of a situation that the people that that are writing the material just can't connect with the mentality of the people that they're writing about, and so, and I, again, it's just something that you know. When I when I look at Wozniak's portrayal in particular, I think, no, that doesn't look like Steve Wozniak to me. That's that's Wozniak in a business suit arguing for basically the status quo. No, that doesn't that doesn't jive with the Wozniak that I thought I knew.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound anything like him. Uh, I am prepared to be disappointed by this film, but I'll probably see it anyway. And then later on, there's a second Jobs film that's, that's written, that's being written by Aaron Sorkin, who is actually the guy who wrote the social network that was, is consulting on. And and maybe that'll be better than this one. Although the description of that, I guess, is that it's just going to be Steve Jobs doing three different presentations throughout his career. It's all going to take place him on stage. So I don't really know what that's going to look like either
3: yeah well i I, th- I kind of thought that 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 one may have more potential in spite of what I just said about the social network <laughs> um, just just because I think maybe the format is so much more innovative um, this this one that we have just viewed it really does seem like a typical Hollywood biopic, and I think by centering on you know just those three occasions in Job's career, um, maybe just maybe the format will lend itself to Something that, you know, even if it's, whatever its status as, you know, as history, maybe at least it will make a better film.
1: Well, um, I think maybe I'll just stick to my Pirates of the Silicon Valley DVD. And <laughs> I'll cry softly to myself or something.
3: Well, if you ever happen to want to see a movie that really does get it right to a surprising degree, um, there was a British production That was on the BBC about, uh, Sinclair, Clive Sinclair, who was kind of the maven of early British computers and his arch rival who founded Acorn Computers. And it may be, the context may be a little bit hard for, you know, for Americans to get into because those computers were never popular in North America, but they actually do really get the mentality right and They do a really good job of getting the technology mostly right with a certain amount of dramatic enhancement, which I'll grant them. And that's actually called Microman. So if you or any of your listeners ever want to see that, you know, you can do this right and still make a good movie, check that out. It's called Microman.
1: I definitely will. Thanks for the suggestion. Steve Weirich, who runs the apple2history.org website, has announced that his book, uh, Sophistication and Simplicity, the Life and Times of the Apple Computer will be uh, will be published on April first, twenty thirteen. It's available now for pre-order from Amazon.com for eighteen dollars and ninety-seven cents. That's a ten dollar and ninety-eight cent discount from the list price at twenty-nine ninety-five.
3: And will there be an
2: ebook? There will be one, but not at on April first.
3: Okay. That's always that's always my problem with these Book releases that come from America, um, especially the, you know, the more hobbyist oriented stuff is it's just very hard for me to get them in Norway and I only usually travel to America once a year now. So I'm always like, yeah, give me an ebook. Just give me an ebook and solve my problem there. Still waiting for an ebook on the Atari, the business is fun, the new 800 page book on the history of Atari that just came out. Right. The one by Kurt Vendel. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I think I want the ebook version of that just because I don't want an 800 page book on my shelf.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand that.
1: I wonder if the April 1st uh, release date of the book has anything to do with the date of incorporation uh, of Apple Computer, which
2: was April 1st, 1976. I doubt that the publisher is thinking that deeply about it.
3: Well, we just hope it doesn't have anything to do with April Fool's Day.
2: That's
1: true,
3: yes.
2: As far as I know, the cover that is currently being shown on Amazon.com is just a placeholder, and the actual cover is still to come.
3: Well, wonderful. I'll be looking for that one.
2: With any luck, you'll be hearing a lot more about this book in the upcoming issue of just GS. We'll be having an interview with Dr. Steve regarding the process of turning a website into a book and why he's chosen to do so now at this time after spending 22 years compiling the story and making it available online for free.
3: Well, that sounds like that might be of special interest to someone on this podcast, so.
2: <laughs> you might crib a few notes and steal his style?
3: Yes.
1: Well, if nothing else, you can have one of your fans buy you the book and ship it over and you can just pay him a PayPal
3: or something. <laughs> well, I, the problem is not, is not buying things. It's paying the shipping price to get it over here. <laughs> so the Norwegians have a tendency to be quite harsh with their customs duties as things come into the country, so usually I end up paying about 30% more than I expected to when I order something.
2: But surely you have family in the United States that you come to visit occasionally, can't you stock up then?
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I do, but that, that means I have to wait, in some cases, almost a year to to get the goodies that I want, and then... I have to have room to carry them all home in my suitcase <laughs> so, well, well, as far as waiting a
2: year, i don 't think the history of the Apple II is going to change that much.
3: Well, the only problem is that you know all all of this great stuff is coming out, and it always seems to come out right after I move past a point in my blog where I say, God, you know if I had had that source, I really could have made that article even better so so that's that's my only dilemma, especially like with this Atari book. Shortly before the book came out, I had written quite a bit about Atari, and then the book appears, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, I could have really used that as an additional source. But I guess that's always going to be happening, so not much I can do about that.
2: Yeah, I'm especially curious to know why Dr. Steve went with a traditional publishing route when folks like Kevin Savitz and David Grealish and David Finnegan have all gone the self-published route. A lot of them used... Amazon create Space, including Stephen Eamon, who did the Ultima, Ultimate Collector's Guide. David Grealish used a different service. I mean, all of these are very interesting topics to me, and I wonder what distinguishes what can be ch- picked up by a traditional publisher and what just flies beneath the radar and requires self-publication. Is it actually the commercial appeal of the books? Is it just the author's desire to avoid all the obstacles and restrictions that you yourself, Jimmy, observed when working with MIT Press. I don't know. There's a. have never published a book. I probably never will. And I'm really curious to know about all the different approaches that uh, Dr. Steve considered before finally choosing the publisher and the format that he did.
3: Well, I think that you gain a lot of benefits from working with a publisher, um, just just having professional editors go over your manuscript is huge i mean mit mit for my book were, they were just amazing with that um you know i had a i had an editor assigned to me who literally literally went over every word every comma every mark of punctuation you know as a as an author that is really really invaluable to have and just to have then professional layout professional typesetting um Professional graphic designers doing your cover and also just the prestige of having a, you know, a a well-known publication press putting your work out is big. And then you also have to think about reach. You know, if you publish through a established publisher, you're not only going to have your stuff out there on Amazon, but you're also going to be in bookstores all over the world. And so, like for, for me and my wife, that was a big thrill. The first time that we actually went into a bookstore and we could see my book sitting there <laughs> on the shelf. You know, that's, that's, that's a cool moment mm-hmm. when you're for a first time writer. Um, but I think that the, as you alluded to and as I alluded to, the other side of that is that you do kind of have to restrict yourself more to the formats and the topics that your publisher is looking for. And, you know, it may be that there just simply aren't enough people interested in reading an 800-page history of Atari or an extended history of the Apple II uh, to justify a major publisher making that investment. And then um you have to go the self-published route. So mm-hmm. um personally, for me, I plan to look at publishers first. And then if I find that it's not going to work out or that I, I'm not going to be able to make the book that I would like to make, then I would look into self-publishing. But I think it's for any author, you would be a little bit foolish to not at least think about the benefits that you get from going through a a real, quote-unquote, real publisher.
2: I agree. I have a friend of mine who's working on a novel. She's been working on it for years. I don't know how familiar she is with the publishing world because she is going to start shopping it around, and if that doesn't work out, she'll self-publish. And I asked her, do you have an editor for your book? And she just kind of looked at me blankly and said, what do you mean, an editor? I said, you know, have you hired somebody to serve as the editor of this book? She said, well, I have friends who are editors, and they've read the book and told me what they think of it. I'm like, no, that's not somebody who's going to go over every single word and comma, like you said. You need to have somebody who's committed to doing this on a professional level, not a friend who's doing a favor. And that's one of the things you get from having a traditional publisher.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... I mean I, I'm not so familiar with how uh fiction publishing works. I believe she would be probably be best served um by trying to find an agent for her work for publishing fiction.
2: Yes, most novel manuscripts are accepted through an agent. That's true.
3: Yeah, and normally once you get normally at least in the non-fiction world, once you get a manuscript accepted by a publisher, then they will provide you with an editor. That will do. That will do that work for you. Um, so that's certainly how it worked for me with MIT. I, I'm I'm thrilled that there there is so much hobbyist history coming out, and I may very well pu- self-publish myself. Um, the only thing that I would say is that when you when you look when you have a book in your hand that was self-published, and when you have a book that was professionally published, and you compare the two. Um, you can almost always see the difference, let me put it that way so if if you can if you can go through a professional publisher, you should definitely definitely give it serious thought if it 's viable for your subject matter and if if not, then you know it is what it is. but
2: All right. well, thank you for that perspective. We appreciate hearing from a published author
1: since we were talking about uh, books and Apple II books and publishing uh, i thought i 'd point out quickly here that David Finnegan has announced that he's working on a second edition of his new Apple II uh, user's guide and also an ebook version.
2: So look for that soon. We will. Thank you. Maybe he can conscript me to sell more of those at Kansas Fest this year, Or or maybe he can come and sell them himself. All right. So we have plenty of books about the state and history of the Apple II, but if you prefer your literature in a more visual medium, we have the archives of every single Apple commercial ever, there is a YouTube user who has published an extensive catalog. Tell us a bit more about that, Mike.
1: Uh, Yes, Ken. YouTube user Every Apple Ads has published, well, every single Apple ad that uh, Apple has ever released on television. Uh, There are 485 of them. They date all the way back to 1977, and they finish off in the present. And as New ads have been released for, for new products. Uh, he's been adding those ads as well. Some of them are uh, of lower quality than others. Um, I have not watched every single one of them. I found that I think I've seen all of the Apple II era ads already, um, and the current ones don't interest me that much. What, what I find most interesting are sort of the in-between years when Steve Jobs wasn't there, the ads for things like the Newton uh, and other products that either didn't do very well or didn't last very long. Have you taken a look at these, Jimmy?
3: Um, I have, actually. Like you, I haven't, certainly haven't watched every one. I actually just learned about this archive yesterday when you sent me the email link. <laughs> so, so I haven't had a great deal of time. you didn't this, just stay this, up
1: for hours and hours watching? Well, it?
3: no, my dedication wasn't, <laughs> wasn't quite that extreme. But, um, I was actually, this was another case where I said, oh, geez, I wish I'd known about that when I was writing my last, few articles um because i actually i actually um uh, maybe two articles ago i wrote quite a long article about the apple lisa project which was the predecessor as apple people i'm sure know to the macintosh at the time i had i had been reading um from a number of published books on apple's history about this and quite a few made reference to the various lisa advertising campaigns and um I kind of, in a sort of cursory way, I kind of looked on YouTube for what I could find and, but I didn't really come up with much. Mainly Lisa unboxings and so on. And so now, of course, again, this is a situation where I'm looking and going, wow, I wish I had had that just a few weeks ago. Um, now, so. Are
1: you the, are you, are you the type of blogger that, that is okay with going back and updating your articles as you find new information? Or do you write it and then it's, that's how it is?
3: I struggled with that a little bit in the beginning because, you know, I was, I kind of had a feeling like, well, if, if when I make a mistake, if I just quietly correct it, then is that somehow, you know, dishonest or something? And uh, over time, I've kind of evolved to the point where I don't worry about that so much. If somebody, if somebody points out a mistake in the comment section, which happens a lot, um, whether it's just, often it's just you know i a typo but in other cases factual errors or or matters where even in in a, matters of opinion where i overreach a little bit um then i will always make sure to leave that comment there and say you know thank you and i'll i'll correct it in the blog in the post itself and go ahead and make that correction then but um for stuff that i find Normally, um I don't worry too much now about making additions or corrections. That said, i don't really go back and completely rewrite articles that I wrote earlier because i 'm always excited about what 's coming next, and that 's kind of what i 've done before kind of seems like old news to me okay, um, I think fair. yeah, well, I think when I actually start going over this stuff with an eye towards pulling it into a book that that will be a good opportunity for me to maybe add some material that was not available to me at the time or that I just didn't know about at the time and maybe flesh some things out, particularly the early articles where I didn't quite know what I was doing as far as the grand project of what the blog was going to be. So, yeah. But uh, I want to say again, though, that what an amazing, amazing resource that is that that he's come up with. That's just... I mean, to, to have that kind of history at our fingertips is just unbelievable. I mean, uh, even t- 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, it would have j- just been incomprehensible to people that we have that at our, at our fingertips. And even, you know, in working on the blog, I should say that so much of what I write is just dependent on the amazing work that people are doing and just archiving and preserving this stuff. Jason Scott, especially, I have to give a huge shout out to. Um, the, the work that he's doing in preserving all of this history, the magazine scans that are available on archive.org now. Um, just, just amazing work. And it's just, I just am so thankful for the people that do this very, very thankless often work. Um, that, you know, their names aren't known. They're often not recognized, but it's, it's amazing stuff that they're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it kind of surprises me a little bit that Apple hasn't demanded that these be taken down. Um, <laughs> And I, I get that it's advertising, but you know Apple has this has this uh, um, has this rep for uh, making people take things like that down even when it would make sense for them to leave it up. so it's kind of neat to see that these haven't that that YouTube hasn't ripped them down yet or anything like that.
2: yeah, when we put this item on the spreadsheet for this episode, it was four hundred and eighty five videos now it's up to four hundred and ninety six and this YouTube user is not creating playlists of videos other people have uploaded, whether or not these commercials were already on YouTube. He is uploading every single video himself, so they all exist on his account. The, the playlist of all the videos, if I'm reading the YouTube analytics correctly, says that it's, all the videos together
3: is less than two hours to watch them all.
1: I guess that would make sense, because they're TV ads, so they're gonna be 30 seconds to a minute. Yeah, the
3: standards, the standard spot is, has always been 30 seconds, so.
2: Right. Yeah, so you could knock all these out in an evening
3: yeah then you would i don't know where your head would be at the end of that journey but must buy apple (laughs) you would probably just be completely confused but
2: (laughs) Uh, but i'll tell you one company whose products weren't getting purchased and that's atari last summer mike and i had a a little tiff over whether or not this company actually is 40 years old and yeah uh the name is 40 years old i think we can agree but the company is not because the it's changed names so many times They've been bought by companies that weren't Atari and then just changed their name to, to take advantage of this name that they bought. Uh, regardless of how old they are though, they've now filed for bankruptcy again. The French publisher formerly known as Infograms, which became Atari in the last 10-15 years or so, has now filed for Chapter 11. So they are, they're, they're in the can yet again.
3: I have to come down on the side of saying that this Atari has little or nothing to do with the original Atari. Right. As far as I'm concerned, Atari died in the mid-'90s.
1: Yeah, me too. Although it is it is, it is interesting, uh, there's uh, been a, a bit more news on that. The U.S. subcompany, I, I guess, or property, uh, whatever you want to call it, part of Atari has filed in U.S. court to be separated from the Infogrames um Bankruptcy filing, so that they can continue to do business on their own as Atari.
3: So they live on, and after all,
1: right. Well, they, that's <laughs> what they file for. Who knows if it's actually going to happen?
2: So we we may still get an updated version of Custer's Revenge. I can't wait. <laughs> in all fairness, that game was never developed or published by Atari. That was Mystique that made <laughs> that game. But still,
1: well, that was back when anybody could make an Atari game and sell it.
2: Right.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was a, That was when the end was fast approaching. Custer's Revenge was kind of like the trumpet of doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: And now anybody can be Atari. The name is for sale every other day. Uh, speaking of money matters, in the last episode of Open Apple, we looked at a Kickstarter that was collecting funds in pounds instead of United States dollars. And I questioned how that was possible, because as far as I knew, Kickstarter was only America-based or United States-based. I did a little bit more research on that. It was very easy to determine that, yes, actually, Kickstarter is in the U.K. They launched on October 31st, 2012, Halloween, and they published some statistics that after their first month, the calendar month of November, they collected 2 million pounds uh, from 45,000 backers and successfully funded 30 projects. So if you are in the United Kingdom and you want to get in on the Kickstarter action, whether it's creating your own project or funding somebody else, you can now do so. So, speaking of new projects, there's an old project that we recently took a historical look at, and that is the Elk Cloner. Mike, take it away.
1: Yes, the the 30 year old computer prank uh, that eventually became the first first uh, known computer virus, Elk Cloner, was written by Rich Sprinta. The humorous British website The Register.co.uk has an interview with him, uh, talked, and he talks about what he was doing and and why he decided to write this program
3: a couple of years ago when i was working on the amiga book i actually had occasion to research that just a little bit um because amongst many other things the amiga was known for its viruses and so i kind of started asking okay where you know where did this idea come from where where did viruses originate so i actually actually dug up that information on the elk cloner it turns out that it turns out that the idea was actually really widely discussed in academia during the 70s that you know this should be possible to do this but then it took a american teenager to come along and actually <laughs> and actually implement <laughs> one in the real world so <laughs> whatever that means yeah but um it, it is funny because the first virus that appeared on the amiga as well um was very similar story it was just a just a teenage prank um you know can we do this and um from there of course a lot of people that had much more malicious ideas suddenly had an example to work from and from there there were just a just a whole smorgasbord of viruses out there that just did horrible things to your computer. So, yeah, from teenage innocence can come some pretty diabolical stuff.
1: Screnta says, Elk Cloner created a rattling noise when the program started. If a disk was infected, you could hear it. If you inserted an infected disk (laughs) in an Apple II, you can hear the head swoosh around an audible signature. It would infect a new disk if the machine wasn't rebooted. If an Apple II was rebooted every time, Elk Cloner wouldn't have spread. But given... People's computer habits, it spread like crazy. Sounds like not much has changed between 30 <laughs> years ago and today, frankly.
3: The weird thing about the virus sort of, I actually want to call it the virus industry because, you know, there are the viruses and then there's this whole infrastructure of people making money cleaning up the viruses. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird symbiotic relationship and you kind of wonder, you know, do these I I find very frequently the the sort of rhetoric around the viruses you know that they're so dangerous they're going to destroy your computer and so on um it's a little bit overblown I think even on Windows platforms which are of course always been the worst target but um I kind of I kind of wonder about these companies that are now making the protection products for the viruses you kind of think well do they really want the viruses to go away or would or is a lot of this fear and loathing sort of coming from them? But that's just me being a cynic, so
1: Well, it certainly it certainly is to their advantage uh financially for there to be continued um, virus development. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I don't I don't wanna I don't know I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say they're out there developing these things themselves and then and then releasing uh the fix for them. But it's it no, no, absolutely it, it, not. It doesn't do them any harm when a new virus comes out, and and people buy their product to take care of it.
3: Yeah, and it, it doesn't it doesn't do them any harm when all of the articles appear in the press saying, you know, new virus out that will destroy your computer, and you have to get protection, and and on and on. I, I I've always found that if you just use a modicum of common sense and a minimum amount of protection, that uh, you'll be pretty much fine.
2: Well, you know what we need to support those antivirus companies? We need new viruses. Especially for the Apple II. And maybe <laughs> that could be a good retro computing challenge. Or I'm whatever you call up it.
1: right now with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the retro challenge winter warm-up is now underway. It, this is an annual event. It occurs, the winter warm-up occurs every January and then there is the actual retro challenge which occurs over the summer and this is an opportunity for programmers from around the world to participate in retro computing programming on their platform of choice. You don't have to be at Kansas Fest. It doesn't have to be done in a week or on a certain computer, uh, but it's possible by the time this podcast airs, the entries will have closed because the contest runs January 1st to January 31st. Now, I have never entered this contest because I don't consider myself to be a programmer. You've tried in the past, haven't you, Mike?
1: I signed up for it, but then I ran out of time. Um, it's amazing how quickly those four weeks go uh, when you have a, a job and family and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I, st- I still intend to do something eventually, but uh, not this year.
2: I'm surprised they didn't email me to ask for prizes, because I have donated GS subscriptions, uh, Drift demo disks, and the like, and I'm always happy to be hit up by other members of the retro computing community to support their endeavors, but... I haven't really heard much about this year's competition, so I do see that they're giving away an autographed copy of Terrible Nerd by our former guest on this show, Kevin Savitz, and I'm sure there are a variety of other prizes out there today, but not from me.
3: <laughs> well, not from me either, so.
2: Well, to heck with them. Yeah. All right. If you are a programmer, a tool that you might want to add to your Apple Two GS portfolio is Bytebagger from UN Wenup. As I understand it, this is a new desk accessory, or NDA, that allows you to hexadecimally edit your files right at the byte level. Is that understanding correct, as far as you know, Mike?
1: Uh That sounds right to me. I haven't actually looked at this program or had any time to play with it,
2: but um, at a high-level description, that sounds right.
3: Sounds like what we call a hex editor.
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, I think that's a more succinct description than the one I fumbled around <laughs> with. Uh, I'm just
3: I'm a little bit surprised that the Apple two GS doesn't already have hex editors available for it. Or does it it, it does.
2: There was one that was part of the Salvation package. I think Salvation Deliverance had it, and then you could also do it in Procell. But this is new in that it comes in an NDA format, so you can do it from within any other program. Okay. So it is a very dangerous utility, and it gives you ample warning. Are you sure you want to do this? But if you are sure that that's what you're doing and you want to play with it, go ahead and download ByteBagger from Ewan's website. There will be a link in the show notes. And if you are a programmer or a user of the Apple II from the complete opposite side of the earth from Ewan, that being Australia, and I haven't actually pulled up my globe to verify that statement, then you are invited to the A2 Central down under chat Andrew Rowan is a former guest of this show and a would-be host of this show, and he has been a programmer, an Apple II enthusiast, a Kansas Fest attendee, and from his home in Australia, where he has also organized a Mount Kira Fest, a compliment to Kansas Fest, he is now hosting an online chat on the A2C.chat IRC channel. This has been held before, and I believe it was on hiatus, and now it is back. So you can use the Samurai IRC CDA, that's a lot of initials, the Samurai Internet Relay Chat Classic Desk Accessory for your Apple II if you want to actually go into the chat with your Apple II, or you can use whatever IRC client you prefer. This chat is being held every Friday from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. AEST. I believe that's Australian Eastern Standard Time. Summertime. Summertime. Thank you. Uh, does it change in the uh, in their winter? Does it become AEWT?
1: I imagine it does.
2: Wow, we are so North American-centric, yeah. Oh, boy. If you are not North American and you want to join in the Australian chat, every Friday, 9 to 11, Australian Eastern Summertime, Andrew's note says, that's probably likely to be Aussies, Kiwis, people in Asia who aren't working late, people in Europe who don't have a day job, and insomniacs from the USA who are going to be present, but everyone is welcome. I recently... Finally, downloaded Loadrunner Classic for iOS. This is a game that came out for Windows Phone 7 last summer, six months ago, and just finally came out for Android and iOS devices. It is all 150 levels of the Apple II version of Loadrunner with the original graphics, and it plays fantastically. It is just as much fun as I remember Loadrunner being. They have not changed anything unless you want to change it. You can layer on the soundtrack on top of the sound effects or disable it. You can change the color scheme. There's a very strange magnification option you can enable that allows the screen to scroll a bit so you can focus on the area of the level that your character is in. I'm having a little bit of trouble with the input because there are three different control schemes you can use. The one that actually uses an on-screen joypad shrinks the game screen down a bit to make room for the controls within the margin of the screen. And the buttons are also really big. You have to reach far into the screen in order to tap the buttons. But overall, I really like it for four bucks. If it's even, if it's even that much, you can't go wrong. Uh, have either of you tried this version?
3: Uh, I have not. Um, I will just say that I'm really happy to see so many of these old retro gaming classics coming to the tablets and the phones now. It's really, it's really nice to see these games being kept alive. Um, there's actually, there's also a really good version of the old classic text adventure, Transylvania. Also available on the iDevices, the iPhone and the iPad. Um, Should say graphics. Should say text with graphics adventure. So um, Hmm. maybe some of your listeners might want to check that out as well.
2: Yeah, I think I remember Carrington reviewing that game on One Megahertz. Mike, have you played LoadRunner Classic?
1: No, but it's on my list um, of games to buy. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It is nice to to hear that, especially considering how poorly the Karataka remake went and, and kind of um, it's nice to see that uh, Load Runner has been updated successfully in, in, in a way that people like us want to play it.
2: For a game like Load Runner that's three to four bucks I just buy it off the bat without thinking about it for a game like Choplifter on Xbox 360 which is ten to fifteen dollars I don't buy it until I know I'm going to play it.
3: Well the question I always have with these remakes is you know there's kind of two ways of doing them there's one way that is very faithful to the original game and basically just tries to update it kind of to the minimum level necessary to make it acceptable to modern players. And then, and I assume that that's how the Load Runner game was done. And that's certainly that was how Transylvania was done. And then, um, there's more of the choplifter approach where they really kind of remake the game with much more modern graphics and a little bit different gameplay. I mean, I guess, you know, that you can argue for both, but, um, they're kind of, it's kind of apples and oranges in a way. Ha! Apples! I get it. <laughs>
2: uh, for what it's worth, I just looked up Choplifter on Metacritic, and the score ranges from like 65 to 71, depending on what version of the game you're playing, Xbox, PS3, or PC. I just looked up Karatika, and it has a score of 60, or on the iOS, 67. So that's strange because I thought Karatika was not fun at all, and Choplifer was. But I guess the masses are s- indicating that they're comparable in quality, and that neither one was all that great.
3: Oh well. I always, I always actually thought it was pronounced Karatika. Uh, according to Joran Mechner, it's Karateka. Karateka, okay.
2: But I think he also said you can pronounce it however you want, as long as you buy it and play it. It's part of the license. Uh, one last thing, one last thing about Loadrunner I was wondering is, do you think there's any of the original code underneath this iOS version?
3: Mm, if I had to guess, I would say they probably used the original code as a reference. I, I, there's so, there's just no similarity between developing for an Apple II and developing for a modern iOS platform. Um but hopefully they, Use the original code as a reference to figure out what the algorithms were um, you know how the data structures were put together and what the what the time limits and so on to create as faithful uh experience as possible, but I would be stunned if there's any actual original code in the in the new versions that makes
2: sense to me I hope they they probably did capture the original art though
3: yeah, yeah, I would assume so the The, the thing is that Almost all of these early 8-bit games, you know, for platforms like the Apple II, uh, to really get good performance on them, you had to code them in assembly language. And that is absolutely as specific as you can possibly get to the computer for which you're coding. And it's also, you know, it's not like if you code something in Objective-C for iOS, um, you have source code that you can quite easily port to other platforms um, with an assembly language program, it's, it's not so easy to do. Um, you have to, all, all you can really do is use the original code as a, as kind of a reference and then, um, build your own game from there.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Let's see. There's another game I want to talk about, but to get there, I want to bring up this Atari Age thread that recently, uh, was posted. Now, we had Kevin Savas on the show recently and some folks, Who listened to this show said that it was great to hear from somebody who's normally associated with a retro computing community that isn't the Apple II. Kevin is an Apple II user, but he's usually associated with the Atari, I believe. You know, in my opinion, this Commodore 64 slash Apple II rivalry that is historical, you know, we joke about it a lot on this show and how we're gonna uh, hang up on people who say that they use the Commodore 64. But after 30 years, for me, the rivalry is friendly and I don't really care what anybody uses. On Atari Age, a user by the name of P-Dog posted a list of about a dozen different categories and said in each category, which is better, the Apple II or the Commodore 64? And the categories include graphics, price, durability, gaming library, keyboard, design, appearance. And it has not become a heated thread. So I'm thinking that this rivalry is friendly to other people as well. They actually are taking this seriously and pulling it apart. And it's not always somebody saying, oh, the Apple II is better in every category or the C64 is better in every category. Uh, it seems pretty balanced. I think on the whole, the Apple II might be pulling ahead, which is interesting because the Commodore 64 was a more commercially popular success. But it's nonetheless an interesting read to see just exactly how these machines compare from a modern perspective.
3: I, th- I think so as well. Um, I will say there are There is a certain subset of people that are still, shall we say, very emotionally attached (laughs) to the platform that they chose 30 years ago. Um, I've had just a few people angry at me for criticizing Apple too much, but I've also had a few people angry for my criticizing Commodore too much. So I, I figure, as long as everybody is angry at me, that maybe I'm doing something right, or at least <laughs> being being somewhat balanced, somewhere in the middle there. But um, yeah, you know, I, I always say that when you ask me what computer is better, the only the only reasonable response has to be, well, what do you want to use the computer for? Because that just that just determines everything. Um, you know, looking at the two objectively. Um, the Commodore 64 is much better at graphics, much better at animation. It has sprites, which makes any any sort of graphical game better. Mm-hmm. Um, it has many more colors, and it's much more flexible in where you can put those colors on the screen. Um, the Apple II, you really have to jump through a lot of hoops to use high-res mode. You can never, you can never seemingly get the pixel that you want to the color that you want um because of a lot of restrictions in the system. Um, in addition, of course, the Commodore sixty four has the SID chip, which is just an amazing sound chip for its time. And the Apple II had just about as primitive a sound system as you can have and still be able to say you have sound at all. You actually the only thing you can do with it as a programmer is just Manually control the electrical pulses that go to the speaker. So there's basically no sound hardware, just a, just a speaker attached, um, to the, to the computer. Um, so, so in those areas, yeah, definitely the Commodore 64 has to be the winner. Um, one thing that, that was not really mentioned in that thread that I think is another advantage of the 64 is, Uh, the fact that the Commodore 64 had actually smart disk drives, and that meant that you don't have to load your DOS program into memory separately. So a Commodore 64 with 64K of RAM has all of that 64K of RAM available to the programmer, whereas an Apple II, which you have with 64K, into which you have loaded DOS to be able to operate with your disk drives, has about 10K less. So, and, so 54K versus 64K, you know, it may sound like nothing, but when you're trying to implement a complicated game or other application on these very primitive platforms, you know, 10K can be absolutely huge. But having said all that, um, on the Apple II side, certainly the the build quality was so much better. Um, Commodore, because of their whole mentality, which was to build these computers as cheaply as possible and build them as quickly as possible, they always had terrible quality control problems. Um and which is not to say that there aren't Commodore sixty fours that have lasted oh god, thirty years now it must be, and um you know, are still going strong, but on average the Apple II is a much better built machine. In addition, the Apple II it didn't have the smart disk drives, but it did have the technology that it actually used um In reading from and writing to the discs, the actual disk drives themselves, the mechanically and the system software that it used, were much was much much better. Um, uh, Apple II had something like ten times the disk throughput, as in read write speed, of the Commodore 64. So for complicated programs where you're shifting a lot of data around, um, that that is a huge huge advantage for the Apple II. Um, in addition, by the time you get to the Apple IIe, e you have eighty column text which the commodore sixty four never had um, you also had a much better basic on the Apple II whereas the commodore sixty four had just about the most awful basic that you could imagine getting away with on a computer really um so so in the end, if you ask me which which computer would I rather use um, depends on what I'm going to do if i'm going to play a uh, an action game or a graphic oriented game i would prefer a commodore 64 um if i'm going to try to get some sort of serious work done i would probably prefer the apple II. even some even for some types of games um if i'm going to play like an infocom game that's all text anyway then i would take the apple II with 80 column text and fast disk access over the commodore 64 any day um maybe even if I'm going to play a complicated CRPG game or something that's going to be have a lot of disk access, then the superior Apple II disk drives will sort of outweigh the better graphics on the Commodore 64. So, yeah, um, again, it it just comes down to what you want to use the platform for, and um, I think most people have kind of put the computer wars behind them. I, I always try to take a balanced perspective on the blog, and point out the strengths and the weaknesses of all of the platforms that I look at. And I think most people accept that in, in these days. Um, it's a few people that, as I said, get angry at me still, but for the most part, I think we're beyond that. So th- thank you for that
2: thorough analysis of the C64 and the Apple II. The thing that really caught my eye about the Commodore 64 is regarding a game called Super Crate Box. This game was last mentioned on this show... In April of 2011, which was our third show ever with Peter Neubauer, Super Crate Box had come out for PC and Mac on October 22nd of 2010. It was nominated by IGN as one of the best games of that year. It was freeware. It has since released on iOS as well. To celebrate the two-year anniversary of the game this past October 22nd, they announced that they are porting Super Crate Box to Commodore 64. Now, I'm not quite sure I see the commercial incentive to do so, other than that, it's really cool. Uh, but to give us a little bit more information on this game, I have a clip here from a group whose title comes from the Commodore 64. It is Loading Ready Run. They do a weekly video game news show called Checkpoint that they host for Penny Arcade TV. We've had a couple of clips from them on the show before, and here's their latest. Beer developers of Super Crate Box, are releasing a Commodore 64 port of the game, because why not, called Super Bread Box. The team hired Paul Kohler, the developer of the C64 version of Cannibalt, to do the port, and you know he'll do a great job because he's not just the developer, he's also the entire market.
0: What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings.
2: Leading off the eBay section this month is an item that we have an international expert on the air for to tell us more about it. There is a Bulgarian clone of the Apple II being sold on eBay. It has a buy it now price of $290. I don't know how much that is in Bulgarian rupees. Jimmy, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this new-in-box Provitz 8C Bulgarian clone of the Apple IIe.
3: Okay, well, I'm going to be speculating hopelessly here because I don't know anything specifically about this particular make and model, but I do well, know that. that's never
2: stopped you before.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what the blog's all about, right? So, um yeah, I do know that the Apple II was quite commonly cloned in Eastern Europe, Um Really the two favorite computers of the behind the Eastern Block to clone were Sinclair Spectrum, which is the Brit- popular British machine and the Apple II. And in both cases, it was because the hardware was actually quite simple and because, um, in the case of the Apple II, everything was meticulously documented by Steve Wozniak. Uh, he wanted everybody to be able to use his creation as as an engine for his, their own creations. And uh so he insisted that everybody should have all of the knowledge about the machine that he did. And, of course, a byproduct of that is that it made the machine very easy to clone. Actually, as many people probably remember, Apple had a little bit of a problem with this, with even in the domestic market, people started making clones of the Apple II. There was a company called Laser, I believe, that made an Apple II Plus clone, maybe an Apple IIe clone as well, for a couple of years until Apple finally sued them and managed to stamp that out. So, um, again, just speculating here, but um, I assume that this is also where this Bulgarian clone arose from, and uh, it certainly looks like a amazing piece of history.
1: If you look through on the specs here, you can see they even used a a cloned sixty five oh two chip the something called the c m six thirty p This particular machine only has three expansion slots, but it sort of makes up for that because the floppy drive controller um, the dual floppy drive controller exists on the motherboard as does the um, does a a parallel plug for your printer.
3: I actually have a Romanian friend uh, who of course grew up in communist romania and um he his first computer was a Sinclair Spectrum, a uh, Eastern Bloc clone of that machine, and so so these machines were everywhere behind the Eastern Bloc. Usually, the technology was about five years behind uh, where the, where they were at in America, because it would take oh, that long for the Eastern European governments to kind of you know get their hands on the computers and strip them down and look at the schematics and clone them. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating um, aspect of retro computing, and I think something that is still kind of understudied. Um, maybe it's a future area of collector interest in the years to come, or an ebook. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it looks like Provitz, uh the company cloned several Apple II versions. Um, they they had a total of six computers that were released between 1982 and 1994. All of them except for one were various versions of Apple II computers, and the other one was a clone of the ORC Atmos. Now, if you live in the United States, uh, in addition to the $290 buy-it now, you've also got to pay $75 for international shipping, so this does not come cheap.
3: But I would actually say if you can get it for $295... Even with the shipping, that that's, um, kind of a bargain. That's, uh, that's an amazing historical treasure, I would say.
1: Yeah. If you're into, to clone collecting, um, this looks like a very nice example. It looks like yeah. it is in the original box. And the, the, pictures, uh, of the internals are very clean. That comes with the documentation and everything. So.
2: Well, speaking of rare apples, there was another one that recently sold on eBay. We have an Apple IIc prototype. It's circa 1983, conceived in 1982, designed at Frog Design Labs. This gentleman had put it on eBay with a buy it now of $3,700, or he would accept his the best offer, and that's what he ended up doing. I don't know what the best offer is, but it did sell in early December. So we're a few months later on reporting this, but it looks like an interesting piece of history. He doesn't seem very familiar with the Apple II. He says... I'm not really sure how to test if it works or if, as a prototype, it ever worked. He has dozens of pictures, or at least a dozen pictures on the eBay listing. Uh, from looking at them, I don't see any obvious discrepancy that would identify this as a prototype as opposed to an actual production unit. Either of you have any insight into this?
1: Uh, there are a few things um, that I, that I see initially, the, the Apple the, the Rainbow Apple logo is in a different location. Doesn't obviously have any of the the markings, the Apple II C logo up in the corner or anything like that. And it looks like the the uh, I don't I don't really know the the design language here, but the the case, the top of the case portion just above the keyboard is angled slightly differently than the final model. That's just what I'm seeing. I'm sure somebody like Tony Diaz could dissect this thing much better than I could. Uh, I, I should point out here that this this was originally listed for $5000 before you lowered lowered it to 3700 but the shipping is
2: free <laughs>
1: <laughs> can't argue with that
2: how much do you think this ship would have gone for mike
1: well i i'd imagine probably around 3700
2: you really do you think it's actually worth that much
1: it's worth what somebody will pay for it if somebody <laughs> paid an acceptable amount i'd say i mean it's you know not seeing the 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 final Offer it's hard to say, but I'm sure it went for a couple thousand at least.
2: Hmm. Well, all the more power to the buyer, I guess.
3: Yeah, I would just want to check that one out very carefully before I before I put down my money on that one. But um,
1: yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of, like like a lot of these eBay items, they they disappear into a private collector's uh, into a private collection, and we never see or hear from them again. So we don't get a chance to look at them or. Analyze them because, you know, there, there are a few people out there that'll take them apart, photograph them, and, and blog about it, but most people don't do that.
2: Wherever this came from, wherever it went, it was briefly on eBay and popped up on our radar and was an interesting piece of history. I hope it found a good home.
3: Me too. Maybe we'll see it again someday.
2: Yeah, Christy selling for a quarter of a million.
3: <laughs> yeah, in a hundred years. Right. Probably not in our lifetime.
2: Or the next time somebody famous dies.
1: <laughs> so this next item isn't quite this isn't about a specific item necessarily, as it is a number of items that were allegedly stolen from Salam Ismail. Now, if, if you listen to the show or you're into retro uh, computer collecting or technology at all, you'd know you probably know who Salam is. He uh, founded the the VCF shows, and he owned a very large ext- and very extensive and complete collection of computer uh, vintage computer equipment that he kept in a warehouse uh in the San Francisco area and it looks like he got a he fell behind a couple of months on rent from the warehouse that he was using and he ended up in some sort of conflict with the landlords who then took a bunch of the equipment that was in the the warehouse and gave and sold it to a local recycler who is now selling this gear online um on eBay that the, the seller's name is TVR sales um, and we'll post a link in the show notes. Salam has been posting, uh, PDF scans of his legal, of the legal documents that he's been filing. This, I guess, has gone to court and has gotten pretty nasty. So, and that's really unfortunate to see. So, is
2: stolen really the right word here?
1: Well, I, am not sure. And that's, I posted about this on, uh, A2 Central and that's why I put a question mark at the end of it because I don't know if this is, you would consider this stolen or not. It, I guess it depends on whose side that you take in this, and granted, we're only getting Salam side at this time, so just if you're going to bid on this stuff, just be aware of what you're bidding on.
2: Yeah, I mean, given that background, I would avoid bidding on these items, not because I believe I'd be doing a great injustice by participating in the auction, but just because I don't want to get in the middle of it.
1: Right, yeah, if, it's, in the United States, I think if you, if you buy stolen gear, you're not legally, you're not gonna get arrested and carted away or anything like that, but the gear can be confiscated and, and you, and you won't be, and you won't be compensated for that.
2: Well, besides the legal implications, I just wouldn't wanna get on anybody's bad side.
1: And there's that too.
2: It's a small enough community.
1: Yeah, he's been posting on the, the classic computing mailing list about how unhappy he is about this and, Kind of making not so veiled threats that if you buy this, he'll track you down and, and reclaim his gear.
2: Unless you're well, that kind of disincentivizes me from buying it in order to give it back to him.
1: Right? Yeah, there's there there is some discussion about how he's been handling this whole thing. Interesting. It, it just sounds like a really ugly mess that you probably want to avoid.
2: And yet here we are talking about it.
1: (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I think people should know about it and it's, it's disappointing because there's, you look, you look at TVR sales and you're like, wow, there's some really great gear there. And then you realize where this came from. It's, right. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth.
2: No, I was kidding. I agree that we should be offering this public service announcement. I just hope that by doing so, we're not taking sides.
1: I, I don't think we are.
2: I don't think so either, but that's not necessarily for us to determine. It's for the people whose sides we are or are not taking. Those jerks. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just hate everybody.
1: Uh, I'm all right with that.
2: (laughs) What do you mean you're all right with it? You already do it. Uh, I have to learn from the master.
1: So I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our eBay section and to the end of our show.
2: I think it does. Jimmy, do you have any parting shots for us? Any announcements that you've been holding off until
3: the very last moment? (laughs) Uh no, not so much. Um, I just say that first of all, I was very happy to be here, and um I don't have the links to the Apple II community perhaps that you guys do as you know, I'm more of a general interest computer nut um but i'm happy was happy to do the to do the podcast and um I have some exciting things coming up on the blog, so I hope people will continue to read or to begin to read, if this is the first time that you're coming to the blog. Um, getting into 1983 and the birth of Electronic Arts, um, amazing run of Infocom games start coming out at this time, and um, also continuing to follow the British adventuring scene, which is something that a lot of Americans don't know a lot about, but it was a really amazing culture. So um, yeah, just hope you guys will keep reading. And as soon as you come
2: out with a book, whether it's a hard copy or an ebook, whether or not it's commercial or free, you let us know. We'll be happy to plug it because we want people reading your stuff.
3: Well, thank you so much and I'll, I'll certainly do that and we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch.
2: Excellent. I hope we do stay in touch because since due to your geography, chances are we won't be seeing you at Kansas Fest anytime soon.
3: (laughs) No, I'm actually going to be in America, um, in April, just a little bit too early where, taking my German in-laws on an extended road trip around the Southwest. So that's going to be my big visit to America for this year. Well, if you happen to have some spare time and are looking for Apple
2: II users to meet up with wherever your travels take you, let me know and I'll put you in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. I'll remember that. And thank you for having been on the show. It's been great getting to know you.
3: Okay. Thank
0: you.
2: Talk to you later. Yep. Bye-bye.
0: This has been the Open Apple Podcast find more episodes read our blog or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net
3: It's just 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 wonderful to be getting into this era now where where Sound systems are so capable at last. Um, no more just beeps and farts and so on. Farts?
2: I, what what instrument makes farts?
3: Oh, the Apple II made a lot of farting noises.
2: Wow! Thank you for that rendition.